I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Oh, all the money that in my whole life I did spend, be it mine right or wrongfully, I let it slip gladly past the hands of my friends to tie up the time most forcefully. But the bottles are done. We've killed every one. And the table's full and overflowed. And the corner sign says it's closing time. So I'll bid farewell and be down the road. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. Joining me this week to talk about Restless Farewell, the closing track from 1964's The Times They Are A-Changin', is fellow Bobcat and podcaster, Matt Bird. Hi, Matt. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on the show. I always love talking to new Bob fans. This is very exciting. So, Restless Farewell, uh, as I said, it's the closing track of the song, and I'm dying to find out why you wanted to talk about this song in particular. But before we get to that, of course, Matt, we have to ask you the standard question. How did you become a fan of Bob? So I think I first discovered Bob Dylan when I was just going through all of my parents' old vinyl records. And I was playing them one by one, and I got to Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits. And I played it, and I said, this is great. This, it is great. Greatest Hits album, you know, that Greatest, greatest Hits playing one is sort of more rocky than it is folky. And it's oh, sort of, yeah. it's focused more on Bring It All Back Home and Highway 61 and Bond on Bond. And I was like, okay, this is this fits in well with my parents' other rock records. This is a good record. And I'm like, I want to hear more from this guy. But I'm like, okay, you know, sometimes you listen to a Greatest Hits and you're like, okay, now I'm going to listen to, you know, the three albums this Greatest Hits was pulled from. And I'm like, well, okay, what should I listen to next? I'm like, oh, there's 30 albums. And they're all supposed to be pretty good. And it's like, I'm too scared by that to jump into these 30 albums. So then I waited. And then Biograph came out, uh, dating myself here. And then I said, oh, good, a three disc. Okay, I can expand from, a, you know, one album to a three disc. And I got Biograph and I loved it. But Biograph is so weird. <laughs> like, I'd, I don't think whoever sequenced Biograph liked Bob Dylan very much. And it may have been <laughs> Dylan himself who sequenced that, that set. But, you know, for instance, putting Percy's song next to The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll really sort of impeaches both songs. <laughs> like, because, like, basically one of those songs is like, oh, and then, you know, they arrested my friend and they, they threw the book at him. He, they said that he killed a bunch of people through manslaughter. That's not even a thing. Like, it doesn't, you know, if you don't intend to kill people, that doesn't really matter. You know, you shouldn't go to jail. And then he does Lonesome Death of Eddie Carroll, which is like, oh, and then this guy threw a cane up in the air and it landed on this maid. And, and he should have gone to jail. That's manslaughter. He should have gone to jail for life. <laughs> I'm, like going, I'm like going, okay, it does not do Bob any favors to put these two songs next to each other on a greatest hit cd not to i don't think either of those songs should be on a greatest hit cd and certainly not right next to each other so i liked i liked biograph but i didn't it didn't give me it didn't give me the doorway into bob that i really wanted and then bootleg series came out and i had a teacher at school who was like you will love this you ought to listen to this loaned me bootleg series one through three and that was actually the album that got me super into Dylan. And I went crazy. I went Dylan crazy. And to this day, if you told me I could bring only one Dylan disc to a desert island, it would be Bootleg Series Volume 1. I, that <laughs> Which disc, my though? You can only bring one disc, though. Which disc? Volume, they were, that first disc was broken up into Volume 1 was the first disc, Volume 2 was the second disc, Volume 3 was right. the third disc, even though it was released as one thing. So Volume 1, the first disc. The very first one. Okay. All right. Got it. I, you know, and that was today I proposed, you know, I proposed songs from early in Dylan's career for when I gave you some options of songs I would like to discuss. Not that I don't love later Dylan. And I thought about suggesting High Water, which I don't think you've done yet. And then I'm like, well, if I suggest High Water, I know Rob loves later Dylan and we're going to end up doing High Water if I suggest High Water. And I want to talk about young. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) don't assume anything, Matt, but okay. All right. I see where you're going. All right. I, I oh admit it, Rob. You would have if I had given you high water as an option. You would have chosen high water. You, I, you. I cannot verify that, Matt. But but okay, okay. I think I think that uh, I want to talk about I want to talk about Young Dylan today. And so okay. I'm like I'm going to propose some Young Dylan songs. And because I love older Dylan more than anything, uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways is like one of my all time favorite albums. I love everything that he's done recently. 
but uh, and certainly High Water, I think, is in there with maybe his top 10 songs. But I want to talk about Young Dylan. So let's talk about right. Young Dylan. But oh, right. We should talk about seeing him live, I guess. Well, before you get to that, I do want to ask you something, though, because you were talking about uh, Biograph and how, of course, uh, its playlist is all over the place, you know, by design. It's you yes. know, 60s Dylan and then 80s Dylan and then 70s. And it's all over the place. So, and a tremendous amount of unreleased Dylan. And a lot of, right, and a lot of stuff that you, you're not familiar with. Now, Greatest Hits is obviously in sequence. Uh, yes. It starts at the beginning, you know, it starts in 62 and ends in like 67. Um, and then Biograph, uh, excuse me, the Bootleg series does the same thing. It goes in order. So did you find that it was, um, you were able to appreciate the growth of him as an artist more because you got to see it? in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, like in the steps as opposed to biograph, which just sorts you, which sort of drops you in the middle and you're trying to figure out, wait a minute, what, if you don't know it, you're like, what year is this from? What is this? Is, was Lay Lady Lay after this song? I don't know. Did you, you find that being able to see the building blocks makes you appreciate each step a little more? Very much. I am always a chronological order man. And gotcha. I would, uh, I would like biograph a lot more if it were in chronological order. And, but I mean, it's just, it's a perverse set. <laughs> it just has a bizarre set list in a bizarre order and a bizarre combination of, you know, rare and unreleased next to greatest hits. And uh, I love it. You know, I've listened to Biograph, you know, on CD. I listened to it until the discs were worn through. Hmm. And on uh, in the streaming era, I've listened to it a million more times. But it is such a weird set. And if you, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to dive into Dylan. I wanted to do, you know, I just wanted, I wanted a stepping stone to finally convince me to buy those 30 albums. And <laughs> Biograph was not that. And then eventually I said, you know, after the bootleg series, I said, I am buying these 30 CDs, which was a big deal back then. Nowadays, yeah. it's like on Spotify, you know, there's very little difference between one album and 30 albums. But on CD, my God. That's was, an investment. Sure. It's an yeah. investment. I mean, and just even owning all that physical stuff you have to move with you from place to place every yep. time you move. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Dylan CDs are the only CDs I pretty much own anymore. Everything else has been converted to just being on my computer and on my phone. Uh, well, but the Dylan, still, Dylan CDs are the ones I still keep. He's releasing stuff just on CD. He's releasing a lot of stuff on CD that's not on Spotify. So you have to get the CDs. So, okay. See, now it's funny. You could make a... Uh, uh, a Spotify biograph playlist and put it in order. You yes. Could, I mean, it would be a lot of legwork, but you could do it, which would be kind of interesting to hear, hear biograph in that manner to say, oh, he's starting with Blown in the Wind and then we're going to move on to Lay Down Your Weary Tune and then we're going to move on to Highway you know, that kind of thing. So, okay. Well, when I listen to Dylan, I have, I've got all the songs downloaded from back in the days before streaming services. And I have made a complete Dylan playlist that has every song in order, intercutting the bootleg series with all of the albums and all of the unreleased tracks. And so that's what I listen to when I listen to Dylan. I listen, you know, I am a chronological man. I listen to every single Dylan song in the order he recorded them. Holy gee. So, (laughs) so when you binge watch a show, you start from episode one and just go your way through it. Very much so. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, okay. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Have you seen Bob live? I just saw him once. I knew you were going to ask. And so I was like, okay, I feel like I can't live up to your other guests. Your other guests have seen him 25 not times. A, it's not a competition, man. It, it is. I've, I've failed in the competition. I just saw him once <laughs> in the year 2000, and it was a great show. And I loved it. It was in Minneapolis. Uh, so it was sort of a hometown show for him. I... Uh, or at least coming back to the place he had lived as a young man. I was living there at the time, and it was a great show. So I'm at the Excel Center, and they he did a fantastic job. But I'm not much of a live music man, so gotcha. I just saw him the once, and that was enough for me. Gotcha. You're just generally not someone who wants to go to a live music in no. general. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Were you uh, – I mean, you had already had the bootleg series by that point, and you had had – Biographs, you kind of knew what to expect, you know. Oh yeah, I had it all memorized. I, I I knew every song, and I understood, you know, I understood that you know a lot of the songs he would play differently from how we were used to them, and that I uh, I you know I understood that he was going to sit down a lot, and that <laughs> it was you know he was doing you know he wasn't uh, he was you know I understood that 
the way he was doing his live shows at the time. So I think some people see Dylan Live who are just, you know, fans of the greatest hits and they show up and they're going like, you know, how come this song sounds different? How come he's yeah. not standing up? How come he's playing a song on piano instead of playing it on guitar? But uh, I understand. Why can't that. I see Bob on the Jumbotron? You're like, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a thing. It's not going to be the way it is. So, okay. All right, cool. So, okay, let's talk about Restless Farewell. Uh, this is one of those songs where, uh, and there's a, a couple like these throughout his uh, recording career where um, he record. this is the final song on the record and he recorded it last. And in fact, times the are changing was ostensibly sort of finished. And then he shows up to with a brand new song. And this song was only, it was, it was apparently recorded on Halloween night and it was done for this session. Uh, I, I mean, for the, this song was done just for that, that session was only devoted to Russell's farewell. So it was something very, purposefully put on as this is the final song of this record. I'm recording it last. I thought of it. I've come up with it recently and I'm putting it on. So why did you want to talk about it? Well, I mean, this has always been one of my favorite songs and it's just such a beautiful song. It's got such beautiful tune and melody, but it's just beautiful lyrics and just a tremendously heartbreaking song. I think it's one of his finest lyrics, which is saying a lot. You know, he's written over a thousand songs, including many of the greatest songs of all time. He's won a Nobel Prize. It's a lot to say that it's one of his best songs, but it is a heartbreaking song. You know, I think that it is, it's such a funny song. It's such an ironic song because he was 23 and he was writing this song about essentially an old man looking back on his life. And he is writing a very wise and perceptive song about having lived sort of a rough life, a hard, bitter life, and going back and going like, well, now that it's all over, let me look back at my life and decide if it was worth it and if I can be proud of the way I lived and what I did. And yes, you know, I can't say that what I did was perfect, but, you know, every girl that ever I've touched, I did not do it harmfully. Every girl that ever I've heard, I did not do it knowingly. And he's like, he's saying, I can't say I was perfect, but... I did my best. And it's so ironic <laughs> that I am 46 and I'm looking at this guy who was 23, who was half my age, who was just a kid. And part of me listens to the song and says, how dare you? How dare you <laughs> at 23 think you have any right to talk about, you know, knowing what life is all about or what life has happened. But of course this was Bob and he is a timeless person. He is someone who had an old soul, was very much an old soul. And this is the song of an old soul. And it's just, it's just absolutely beautiful. I mean, I think that people always at the beginning of their careers want to talk about getting old, you know, so you've got Alice Cooper talking about, you know, lines form on my face and hands because I'm 18. And it's like, <laughs> what you think, you think that's when lines form on your face and hands, or you know, you've got Aerosmith, like Aerosmith has had this 50 year career. And one of their biggest songs is saying, you know, every time I look in the mirror, all these lines in my face getting clearer. And you're like, okay, that was clearly a song that Aerosmith released at the end of their 50 year career. Right. So like, mm-hmm. you know, that was their very first song when they were little kids, they wrote that song. And you listen to the song, and this should be a song on rough and rowdy ways. This should be a song where 80-year-old Dylan is looking back at his life. And instead, this is a song on the times they are changing. And he is just leaping ahead. But then, of course, we get, you know, it becomes a song about an 80-year-old when he plays it at Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday party. Well, yeah, and, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. Yeah. And so that was the time when the song actually sort of came into its own. And he's like, yes, this is a song for an 80 year old specifically. It's for Frank Sinatra. And, mm. and now you can't listen to the song without hearing, without thinking this is a song about Sinatra to a certain extent. And you and now you, especially now Bob Dylan spent his entirety of his seventies doing Sinatra covers yep. after Sinatra was dead, long after Sinatra was gone. And then just when everyone was convinced he would never do an album of new material, he puts out a amazing album of new material to celebrate his 80th birthday, shortly before his 80th birthday. And now he has become old Frank. <laughs> and he everything has come full circle. This come, I would certainly, you know, love to hear him revisit this song today because this is you know, this is a song that he should finally have earned the right to sing. Hmm. I I don't know where I heard this. 
Uh, I mean, just over the decades of me being a Dylan fan and reading things and, and whatever. But I remembered somewhere coming across the idea that, that you know, I've, we know that Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, when he was uh, in the 50s and 60s, was not a big fan of rock and roll and said a lot of kind of nasty things because it was a generational divide. You know, that kind of music was being considered kind of old hat. And here comes these noisy rock and roll people. And, and Frank Sinatra was uh, not one to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, keep his opinions to himself, uh, right. as, as it was known. And, and so he was pretty dismissive of a lot of rock and roll, though he, later on he would go on to say some like things. I remember he, he even sang, uh, something he, he covered George Harrison's, uh, the Beatles something. And, right. um, but I remembered reading somewhere that he liked this song that he heard this song. And he was like, like, you know, Hey, that's a good one. You know, that's my terrible Frank Sinatra impression. But like, this was something that he liked. So later on, again, we'll get to it when, when uh, Dylan ends up singing it for Frank Sinatra. So you could see Very why Frank much. Sinatra would kind of like it. Uh, I mean, except <laughs> the, the, the second verse, which you already talked about, says, oh, every girl that I ever I touched, I did not do it harmfully. And every girl that I've ever hurt, I did not know it knowingly. But to remain as friends and make amends, you need the time and stay behind. And since my feet are now fast and point away from the past, I'll bid farewell and be down the line. I mean, so it is kind of, as you say, it's like kind of gutsy for a 23-year-old to sort of have these thoughts. But, of course, Bob Dylan was already doing that. He was doing that as far back as his first record. He was sort of playing himself as this old man ahead of his time. But you could see why Sinatra would hear this and go, yeah, I I like that kid's jib, you know, or whatever. (laughs) Because it's got that kind of tone to it. Now, I mean, obviously, we need to talk about it's based on a Scottish ballad. The yes. parting, the parting glass. I mean, the opening verse of the parting glass is of all the money that I ever had, I spent it in good company, and all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to no one but me. I mean, that. I mean, the the owner, the um, debt in debt that uh, the, you know, restless Pharaoh has to parting glass is so obvious that it's not a case of Dylan stealing something. It's just he's making his own version of this classic ballad. Yeah, I mean, it was a song in the public domain. It was there for the taking. And I was a little disappointed when I heard The Parting Glass because I'm like, oh, you know, I thought this was such a, I mean, I know better. I know that Dylan borrows melodies all the time and that so many of the great Dylan songs, you then find the original folk song that he has borrowed the tune from and you're like, oh, okay, he just borrowed that tune. But this is such a beautiful song and such a beautiful, you know, he didn't, and he just didn't borrow the tune from the Barney Glass. He borrowed the sentiment, as he said, like yeah. that first verse is very similar to Dylan's first verse. Now, obviously, Dylan took a, what was already a great song and he made it better. He made it Dylan. He made it genius. He made it Nobel Prize worthy. And he did, you know, he turned it into his song and it's very much his song. But you know, it's funny, I only discovered The Parting Glass when I was researching this episode, when I was invited on, <clears throat> and I'd always wondered, I always thought like, oh, this song sounds kind of Irish, turns out it's actually of Scottish origin, but turns out The Parting Glass is technically a Scottish song, but it is very popular in Ireland, and I always heard the song, and I thought, it sounds a lot, sounds very Irish, I would love it if Irish acts would cover this song, I'd love to hear actual Irish voices doing this song, and they never did, Mark Knopfler covered it and did a very good job. But I was like, I'd like to hear some Irish acts. And then I discovered The Parting Glass. And all of the great Irish acts have covered The Parting Glass. So you can go on Spotify and you can hear the Dubliners doing The Parting Glass and the Pogues doing The Parting Glass. You can even hear Ed Sheeran doing The Parting Glass. (laughs) And it's nice to hear them and go like, oh, okay, it's sort of like they're covering Lysol's Farewell because they're covering the song that it's based on. But I, but, you know, so it's very interesting to, I do recommend everybody go. If you're a fan of the song, listen to The Parting Glass, see where this song departs you know he took a great song with a great concept and he made it personal and he made it about himself and about what he himself was feeling and he made every line weird he just Mm -hmm. every line of this song is just so strange like you know you read the first line to tie up the time most forcefully like that's a strange phrase yeah for (laughs) <laughs> or to pass the time, essentially, you know, so he could have said, you know, I let it slip gladly, pass the hands of my friend to pass the time gracefully, or something like that. But instead of pass the time gracefully, he's tying up the time forcefully. <laughs> like, that's, that's, it's a hard way to live, you know, to go like, oh, well, I've got an hour to kill, let me tie it up forcefully. <laughs> and, 
like really that's what you're doing with your life you're 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 wrestling with every moment of your life you're tying it up forcefully and he made this is this is a tough guy who has lived a tough life and who is wrestling with his life and he spent his life wrestling with everything in his life and he is now trying to walk away from it all and realizing that he has come to the end of the line I'm glad you said it's a, you referred to it as a strange song because I always sort of felt it that way because the first four verses, he goes on with the, oh, every foe that ever I faced, the cause that was there before became, every cause that ever I fought, I fought a full without regret or shame. And then the next verse is, oh, every thought that strung a knot in my mind, I might go insane if it couldn't be sprung, um, but it's not to stand naked under unknown eyes. It's for myself and my friends that my stories are sung. So you've got these first four verses that are very gentle, very lilting, very like a, almost Kesara kind of thing. I did my best. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, if I hurt anybody, I'm sorry, but I always just tried to be as best I could. And that's the, those are the fourth verses. And then you get to the last verse. And to me, the song takes a distinctive shift uh, in tone because the, the, the final verse, he says, oh, a false clock tries to tick out my time to disgrace, distract, and bother me. And the dirt of gossip blows into my face and the dust of rumor covers me. But if the arrow is straight and the point is slick, it can pierce through the dust no matter how thick. So I'll make my stand and remain as I am and bid farewell and not give a damn. So all of a sudden, this guy, the first four verses, he's kind of like, oh, I'm sorry if I hurt anybody. I didn't mean to be. And then the fifth verse, he's like, hey, everybody, F off. (laughs) And supposedly it was, you know, inspired i'm doing air quotes inspired by an interview that he had done with newsweek magazine uh where they had uh, talked about uh that he had apparently supposedly he had a bad relationship with his parents even though his parents had been he had a good relationship with his parents although he had lied earlier about that but at this point it was known and then there was another thing about there was some classmate of bob's uh, who claimed to have written blown in the wind and Newsweek apparently gave that person, that. That Newsweek gave that guy some credence. And, you know, Dylan was understandably angry about that. By the way, it's always funny. You always hear those stories pop up about some unknown person who says, this great person stole X from me. And the right. person, the, the, generally, the person who makes that claim has never done another thing notable. <laughs> you know, and you're right. like, oh, wow, you managed to write one of the greatest songs ever in history, but you never wrote another thing that anybody's ever heard of. That's kind of interesting. You know, what are the odds of that? You, you had lightning in a bottle and you never were able to do it again. I, you know, I'm always feeling a little suspicious about it. So supposedly Dylan was pretty mad about yeah. this Newsweek interview. And that seems to be, well, that's the final verse where he's basically saying, I'm tired of all the sort of bullshit that's said about me. And I'm going to, I love the, the, if the arrow is straight and the point is slick piercing through the dust no matter how thick that's a great great series of images but it, it really does feel strange that the song is so gentle and then that last verse it just sort of transforms into a different song well i mean it's a song of somebody trying to decide if they want to apologize for their life and sort of thinking in those first four verses about apologizing going like well now that i think back on my life i have heard some people and I have not accomplished some of the things I wanted to accomplish. And I have, you know, I have, I do need to think about what I've done wrong. And could I have remained friends? Or did I need the time to stay behind? And I couldn't do that. And then he gets to the last verse and he's like, nah, fuck it. Nah, I, nah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to bid farewell and not give a damn. And, you know, it's funny reading these lyrics in preparation for coming on this show you know, I started off thinking like, okay, this is about a man at the end of his life talking about his life. And a lot of the times a parting glass has been used. It tends to be a song that is sung at Irish funerals. And in the movie Waking the Divine about an Irish funeral, it's the end of the movie as they sing this song. And, but reading it this time, I was like, you know, I don't think this is necessarily a song about an eight-year-old man, whether it's eight-year-old Sinatra or eight-year-old Dylan saying goodbye to their wife. It's sort of a song about a 23-year-old man saying goodbye to protest music. And this is the final song on his final protest album. And you read it from that point of view, 
And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's what he's talking about. You know, he is talking about, um, wait a second, I've got, you know, he says, oh, every foe that ever I faced, the cause was there before we came. And every cause that ever I fought, I fought it full without regret or shame. But the dark does die as the curtain is drawn and somebody's eyes must meet the dawn. And if I see the day, I'd only have to stay. So I'll bid farewell in the night and be gone. You know, he's talking about fighting for causes. And he's talking about like, well, I can be proud of the way I fought for causes. You know, I recorded a lot of great protest songs. I sang at the March on Washington. I was there. I was on the front lines. But ultimately, I am not Phil Oaks. And I was not born to be a protest singer. And I am not Joan Baez. And I, you know, I fought these causes full. I mean, at this point, he was only 23. He'd only put out three albums, but he had lived a lifetime. He had sung a lifetime. He had made it to the mountaintop. He had sung at the March on Washington. And then he is saying, you know, but it's time to draw the curtain to see the day. And I think I'm going to have to say goodbye to being a protest singer. And that is, I didn't even have that reading of the song until I did it this time. And mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, that is, that's another thing that he's sort of saying. And, you know, this was the only real goodbye people got from protesting or Dylan. And, of course, then he ends with, yeah, in the end, I don't give a damn. It's sort of like Melania Trump wearing her, you know, I don't care to you um, jacket. But <laughs> when she went to visit the children, the children of the border. But this is, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that he's, do you think that this is sort of his farewell to being a protest singer? Well, it's it's most definitely uh, well. But to say it was on purpose, but of course it was. It's a ridiculous thing to say. You comment that it was on purpose, but the previous session that he did for Times Era Change and he recorded "Lay Down Your Weary Tune" and Percy's song. Both uh -huh. both songs that I think would have fit on Times Era Change and Times Era Change is obviously very specifically meant to be a kind of one dimensional album it's an album of finger pointing songs as, as dylan himself said the album cover is even supposed to look like those stark dorothea lang dust bowl photos and so the whole record has a lot of those songs a ballad of house brown or, or hattie carroll it's all sort of finger pointing stuff and then all of a sudden you get to this final song and he you really feel like this song could have fit on another side of bob dylan so this Very song much. this song is like the linking material between times era changing and the next record, and he realized that he could have left it off or not done it at all and included Lay Down Your Weary Tune or Percy's song, both songs that I enjoy very much. I really love Lay Down Your Weary Tune. But he left them, he purposely put them aside to do this. So yes, I agree on some level. He is like saying, okay, here's, those are all the finger point songs, and now I'm pointing in another direction. The only problem I sort of Pointing have, it at myself. Yeah, pointing it at myself. The only problem that I still have with it a little bit is how much does he mean it? Because like in the verse, oh, every girl that I've ever touched, I did not do it harmfully. Every girl that I've ever hurt, I did not know and knowingly. And then the very next record, another side is full of songs where he's kind of a dick. <laughs> I mean, Ballin and Plain D, come on, you know? So you're a little like, well, wait a minute. Who, the, the, the gentle Bob of this song, where is he to be found on the very next record? Because he definitely went out of his way to harm people on that record. You know, it's funny. I sing. My son has a middle name Dylan. Uh, he's got a picture of Bob Dylan hanging over his bed. And I he he liked me to sing to him like longer than most kids like to be sung to. He you know, I was singing him down to sleep until he was like five. And it got to the point where I was just desperate for songs. You know, I was singing song a night and I like to sing new songs. Uh, my wife would just sing the exact same song to him every night. And when she'd put him down, but every other night I'd put him down and I like to do new songs. So I did a ton of Dylan. And so I Give would sing Dylan to him. And of course, Give us new yes, stuff. Play the new stuff. And so I would, you know, I'd sing Mr. Tambourine Man. That's a great song to sing to a little kid. But then I would go further afield and I would sing this one. But I would skip that verse because I I hear that song and I am, you know, a heterosexual man who's, you know, had girlfriends and then eventually got married. And I know all about, you know, accidentally hurting people, you know, sure. because that's part of being, 
you know, living in the world is that you're going to date people and you're going to, you know, be selfish and immature and you're going to accidentally hurt people. You're not going to do it knowingly, but you're going to accidentally end up hurting people who you were in a relationship with just because you were selfish or not considerate of them. And so I hear the song and it, you know, it touches my heart. It's, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I've been there. I know how that feels. And, you know, I've certainly been in situations where I'm like, you know, oh, you know, I just got to keep making amends to this person and make sure we stay friends. And then eventually you're like, no, I can't do that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to just uh, admit that I was not the person I should have been in this relationship, but I can't try to rescue it now. And I have to walk away. But I I hated to sing that song to my five-year-old, (laughs) four-year-old son, because I want him to think that it's possible to never hurt anybody. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. don't want him to know what Bob knew at 23 and what I know at 46, which is that it's very hard to go through life without accidentally hurting people. And you have to, you know, have a parting glass at some point and you have to think about who you've hurt and who you've been selfish around. And certainly Bob knows all about that. And you have to think like, okay, you know, to what degree am I going to blame myself for this? To what degree am I going to try to make amends for my actions? And to what degree am I going to have to walk away? And that is what this song is. And that is, you know, the pain of the song. The song is touching some very real pain. I think, I think it is the perfect ender for Times They Are Changing and it deepens the whole album. I think that this is a song that is the gut punch at the end of this album, an album that's, you know, very much about being an angry young man. And then at the end, he's like, but now I feel so old. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, it said as much as I like Percy's song, it would have been another song of of injustice. And it might have just been like, all right, you know, uh, and I know as much again, as much as I like it, it would have been like more of that. So this does give it a give give the album uh, a distinct kind of close, which again, Dylan was Dylan is big on to this day. Uh, whether it be you know wedding song or on Planet Waves or Dark Eyes on Empire Burlesque or even Murder Most Foul, he likes to change it up at the very end uh, in some way and sort of um, recontextualize the whole record. Now, it's for whatever he thinks about the song, it's not something that he chooses to perform very much. He has performed it twice. In concert. That's oh my it. Gosh. Twice. 19, once in 1964, and then again in 1998, where he closed the show with it, which to me is a very specific statement because, as we all know from studying Bob Dylan's set list, because we're all nerds and we do that, he has, he has basic set lists that he follows, and then there are sort of like slots where they have, where it's like a potpourri. You know, so it's like every concert's going to open with the same four songs. And then there's like the random slot is number four and they have mm-hmm. multiple songs to pick from. What do they feel like doing? All right, let's do the man in me. And then three more standards, another one, blah, blah, blah. But to, I, you know, I mean, I guess Russell's farewell was um, probably the, the, the encore, but that seems like that doesn't seem like something you would just toss off uh, at a moment's notice, a song that's only been performed well, I was about to say one time, but then of course we know there is another time that's not listed here on the website. But that seems interesting to me that uh, he only twice in the in the last fifty years, uh, fifty five years, only twice, at twice, and for Sinatra, right? And of course that list does not mention uh, the most famous. Uh, I'd probably say the most famous version of it at this point, which is weird. It seems like the Bob Dylan website does not count TV appearances or tributes, or any sort of non-concert, non-Bob Dylan concert, they don't count them, which is strange. Because to me, if Bob's performing it live in front of a crowd, it counts. What what difference does it make, what what the context is? But BobDylan.com doesn't do that. But of course, yes, in 1995, when they aired the Frank Sinatra 80th birthday special, which was a bunch of people singing Frank Sinatra songs to Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan was there. And, you know, I remember, again, 1995, pre-internet, and knowing that Bob Dylan was going to be on TV was kind of hard to find out. You know, unless you got, like, TV Guide. Sometimes you didn't know it, but I had heard about it earlier, and I was like, ooh, oh, my God, Bob Dylan's going to be on TV. This is so exciting. He's just on Letterman. That's only ever, you know, he's only ever on Letterman. That's it. He's going to do this. So I watched that whole concert, and I remember sitting watching this thing and being stunned that Bob is surrounded by this whole, you know, orchestra 
right. uh, in that wonderful silver suit that he had, the gray suit. And right. I don't know about you, but to me, this is hands down my favorite version of Wrestles for. I mean, there aren't that many to pick from, but man, he just crushed it. I love the version he did for the Sinatra tribute. He, it is beautiful, and it's so meaningful to put it. You know, suddenly, you know, lines like. Lines like, you know, a false clock tries to take up my time to distract, distract and bother me. The dirt of gossip blows my face and the dust of rumor covers me. That is, you know, like, that is totally about Sinatra. <laughs> like, oh, you can totally see Sinatra <laughs> like, digging into that kind of line. Sinatra is covered in the dirt of gossip and the dust of rumors. <laughs> With good reason. Had, With good reason. had so much to live down. Yeah, let's, and, let's you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> he's got to cut through the dust uh, with the arrow is straight and the point is slick. And... Then, like, you can totally see how he would request this to be the only song played for him that was not one of his songs. Right. Uh, although he could not have known that later this guy would go on to record three albums of Sinatra covers. Mm-hmm. But uh, for him to go ahead and say, I want to hear this song, I want him to play it. And it is a beautiful song. He does a beautiful job. I think I may, you know, if I had to choose which which record to listen to, which recording to listen to on any given day, I'd probably choose the times era changing version. But uh, I, I think I, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit tighter and it's got, a, you know, obviously a little more youthful vigor to it. Although this is, I would love to hear him do it now. I would love to oh. hear his voice as it is now. And the snarl that he has on rough and ready ways he has, you know, and I would love to hear his current band and they could kick ass on the song. I've always wanted the song to be more upbeat. I've always wanted to hear, like, I've wanted to hear you 2 cover this song. I would like to hear, you know, uh, you know, a snarling version of this song, even though it is a mournful song. It's also a song that, as we talked about, has some anger to it. And I've always thought, you know, I would love to hear his current band do it. I would love, I would love to hear, you know, something like, you know, uh, something like crossing the Rubicon combined with this song. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like when the sex pistols covered my way, you know, they, <laughs> exactly. they turned it into their, you know, I did it. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, you can see that. Yeah. It would be interesting to hear like a rocked up version of, of restless frail. That we really, I, you mentioned the Mark Knopfler cover, uh, which I enjoy. And there's a, the one by Joan Baez, uh, but uh-huh. neither, neither one of them are rocked out uh, no. by, by any stretch of the imagination. So yeah, they, and you know, the, the amazing, again, the amazing thing about this guy and why we, why I do the show is like, you, you like most people, we, we tend to think that Bob is great when he is leading the band and they're trying to catch up with him. You know, it's that kind of ramshackle seat of the pants. It's that, that frisson that he gets that, that right. makes the things really special. But then when he wants to, and he, is able to sort of subsume himself into an arrangement because clearly there's an arrangement going on here because all the parts by the, by the, the band are very precise and he mm-hmm. is, he's sort of going along with the arrangement as it's been constructed and it works just as well on its own terms. And I love the specificity of how he sings the lyrics, by the way, you should mention the version that was shown on television that night is edited. That ah, was, they, they, cut, know, it, they cut it down. Yes. I was surprised. I watched the video for this episode and he has all five verses in the version yep. that's on YouTube. He, when, he yep. is committed to the bit. He does the full song. I was surprised. I'm like, they showed all five of these verses on TV in a know. Sinatra special. Yep. They did not. They did I not. See. When it later appeared, I remembered watching it on television and it, I, I didn't know the song that well, but I think even at the time I was like, Oh, I guess he just did a short version. Okay. I mean, Bob's been known to do that. And then later I got a bootleg um, with this. And all of a sudden, like I got to the point where I figured he was going to, cause from what I remember, the ABC live version plays the first two verses. And then the last, it jumps. Oh. To, I mean, obviously it has to jump to the last cause that's the end of the song. And he does that weird happy birthday, Mr. Frank, which is weird. Mr. Frank, <laughs> what is that? But it, from what I remember, it does verse one, verse two, verse five. And then I remembered hearing the bootleg and I'm hearing him and I'm, he's getting to the end of verse two. And then all of a sudden he keeps singing and I'm like, wait, what, is, <laughs> what is this? And I realized, oh, okay. You know, for the full show, he did the, the whole song, which of course, if Frank Sinatra asks you to sing your song, uh, right. you know, you're going to do it that way. I mean, come on. I mean, you're going to sing the whole song, but it's really, 
an incredibly beautiful version. And if, if on top of that great version, it also led to that photo that went around of from that night of Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen and Frank Sinatra all in the same photo, which is just, you know, here, oh like you can't, you can't imagine like what the stories that flew around had to just be unbelievable. But, but yeah, it's a really beautiful version and Bob does it the way I could see Frank Sinatra doing it. Right. You know, and, and it's just amazing that he can, he, he can, he can uh, change his approach at any given point to fit what is the appropriate sort of way to do it. And it's just, again, it's just a marvelous, marvelous version. It is. And, and, you know, sort of turns the song into his version of my way. He's yep. like, well, you know, Mr. Frank, you like the song my way. Here's my version of my way, which is, of course, a better song than my way. And, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> I thought I was on Bob Dylan. I thought I'm just saying my way is one of the most famous songs ever recorded. That's it's a bold statement, Matt. This is this is Bob Dylan, and I think that we're Bob Dylan partisans here. And I think that every Bob Dylan song is better than every other non-Bob Dylan song. Fair enough. Fair enough. I would say this is a better song than my way. My way is fine. I love the Ramones version, like you said. But this is, you know, this is such a personal song. It's such a strange song. Like, you know, just I talk about in my books about just the power of strange adjectives. And, you know, but the time ain't tall, yet on Mm -hmm. time you depend and no word is possessed by no special friend. Like, what does that even mean? The time ain't tall. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, he's, he really, he doesn't let you listen passively he is making he is surprising you with every other word and he is saying like no this is precisely the way i want to phrase this and even though it's not you know it's not a phrasing you've ever heard before and it's not my way it's not you know a plain spoken song this is a complexly spoken song and it is this is Dylan, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that's why people these days tend to cover the parting glass instead of covering this song. For one thing, it's just this is a classic Dylan song in terms of cramming a lot of words into every line. <laughs> like he's, you know, I mean, well, let's look at this line. Oh, every thought that's strung a knot in my rind. So right away, that's a lot of syllables to cram into one line. Oh, every thought that's strung a knot in my mind. I might go insane if it couldn't be sprung. Then here we go again. But it's not to stand naked neath unknown eyes. Like unknown is three syllables. <laughs> and they're, um, uh, like instead of say unknown, we need, under unknown eyes, it's for myself and my friends that my stories are sung. Um, but so then you gotta wonder, is this true? You know, this sounds totally not true because I think it's totally true that he might go insane if his songs couldn't be sprung. And you have to wonder what the last year has been like for Bob, you know, having toured constantly for 30 years and then being off the road for a year. And one can picture that he, that all these songs are stringing and not in his mind and he might go insane if they can't be sprung. But then he says, oh, but it's not to stand naked and unknown eyes. It's for myself and my friends, my stories are sung. And, you know, we know about Dylan's life in Dinkytown and in the village. And <laughs> he tended not to privilege his friends over his audience. <laughs> he tended True. to, yeah. he tended to, you know, sacrifice friends if need be in favor of his audience. Steal and their records, <laughs> take their arrangements. Yeah. Like yeah. steal the records figuratively and literally. He would literally yep. steal their records. Literally steal their records. Yeah. And then he would figuratively steal the records yep. and he would borrow their arrangements. And I think that this is totally disingenuous when he says <laughs> it's for myself and my friends. My stories are sung. I think he loves to stand naked neath unknown eyes. I think that this song is him standing naked neath unknown eyes. And this record is, and certainly the next record is, you know, when he shows us another side of himself and he is showing him, showing us the inside of himself on the next record. And he's saying, you know, let's stop talking about external issues. Let's talk about internal issues. And but, you know, but I think he is, I think he's trying to, I think a lot of this song is him trying to tell himself things. 
And he's trying to tell him, tell himself, like, you know, get it together, Bob. <laughs> it's not to stand naked neath unknown eyes, which I think he was under a lot of scrutiny at the time, and he was really chafing. And you can certainly see that and don't look back. And then he says, no, it's for myself and my friends, my stories are some. You know, I'm doing this, you know, you got to, every artist has this decision where it's like, am I doing this for them or am I doing this for me? And if I do it entirely for them, this is what the latest episode of my own podcast is about. If I do it entirely for them, then it's going to suck. And the only way this is going to be any good is if I do it for me and my friends, is if I do this for, you know, people who mean something to me, if I do it for, you know, if I do it for love. And I think he's trying to tell himself that. (laughs) But ultimately, he made his choice. And the choice he chose was unknown eyes. That, you know, a lot of a lot of artists, they get to the point where they're 60 years old. And they're like, well, I'm just going to sit around and, you know, hang out with my friends. And I'm going to stop touring. And I'm going to, you know, just sit around and strum guitar with my friends. And Bob did not do that. (laughs) He turned 60 years old. And he said, I'm going to be on the road 200 nights a year for the next 20 years. And he is addicted to an audience. He he loves having that audience. And he sort of, you know, he decided that he does give a damn. <laughs> and he mm-hmm. does, you know, he doesn't give you the show exactly you want. He will play the songs in weird ways and he will play odd set lists and he will, you know, sit down and not face the audience. But he is someone who is just, you know, addicted to the limelight, as another song once said. That's a great place to leave it, Matt. I can't think of a better <laughs> way to sum up this song than, than that. So, uh, so you know, gee, wow, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this song. You you gave me a, probably a greater appreciation of it than maybe I had had to this point, although I said I certainly love the Sinatra version. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I very much appreciate your passionate uh, love of this song. I am passionate about the song. I would put, I would probably put it in my top 10 Dylan songs. Wow. I would, I, you know, it's saying a lot, you know, I, having heard the parting glass, I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I discovered the parting glass while studying this thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I, I, I'm not as blown away by the song as I used to be before I heard the parting glass because I'm like, oh, okay. You know, he wasn't starting from scratch here. Um, I, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't, you know, entirely compose this beautiful melody, but it just makes me appreciate it all the more that he was able to take this, you know, already beautiful song and then, and then create something so beautiful and so personal out of it. All right. So, okay. So before I wrap up here, I have to ask you, uh, as I've been asking uh, everybody in the last couple of episodes. So Bob, uh, we, we know at some point he's going to return live. Uh, the, the shadow kingdom thing is not exactly that, but we're all pretty confident he's going to be returning live. So, so what song, Matt, he comes to you. He says, "Matt, what song do you want to me? What what song do you want me to open uh, your first show with? What what song do you pick?" I would say "Crossing the Rubicon." I think that is one of my favorite songs in the new record. I would say my favorite song in the new record is "Murder Most Foul," but I don't think that would be a good song to open. Seventeen a show minute with. <laughs> opener. That would be so, be a baller move. That's for sure. <laughs> a seventeen minute dirge <laughs> to open your show. I don't think would kick things off in the best way. So I would say probably my second favorite song on the album. Another one I thought about suggesting to you. <laughs> I don't think you have you done "Crossing the Rubicon" yet. No. Uh, I I also thought about suggesting that one, and then I said, "Oh no, Rob would do that one." I want to do Young Dylan. A, but um, you keep trying to guess. You keep trying to second guess <laughs> me, man. Now come on. I'm trying to second guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, I love "Crossing the Rubicon," and I would love to hear it live, and I think that would kick off the show with a hell of a start. I like that suggestion. You know, I feel like uh, we're all getting together post COVID. We all have crossed a very particular Rubicon. We have. So and I, I like that thematically. I, I like that quite a bit. That's a great choice. So I, I would love to see him live. I would love to see him do that song. I certainly listening to your podcast, which has just been wonderful to, you know, get new perspectives on all 150 songs or so that you've mm-hmm. done. And I, it's really made me want to see him live again. Well, good. That's great. I hope you get a chance. To. I hope we all get a chance to as soon as possible. So, well, Matt, okay, before we sign off, I got to ask you, uh, where can people find you out on the internet? I am everywhere on the internet. I wrote a book called The Secrets of Story. I have a website called thesecretsofstory.com. I also co-host with James Kennedy, The Secrets of Story podcast, where we talk about 
writing and how to write and different ideas about it. But I also have a new podcast, which I know that this podcast spun out of a comic book podcast. And I also have a new comic book podcast. Me and my brother, Steve Bird, he was an anchor for DC Comics for 10 years. And he and I have started a podcast where we reread, not DC Comics, we reread every single Marvel comic, starting with Fantastic Four number one. And we say fun things about them. And that's called Marvel Reread Club. We are coming out every week, as opposed to my other podcast, which has released 29 episodes in six years. Mm. This this podcast has been coming out every week, and you can find it. You can find all of my stuff at secretsofstory.com, and you'll see in the sidebar we have the Secrets of Story podcast, and we also have the Marvel Reread Club podcast, and we would love to have you listen to either one of those. I know. So now when you say every Marvel comic... I mean, like, what do you mean every Marvel comic? The two gun, the- two, two gun Kid, Marvel 2-in-1, no. <laughs> Night Nurse? I mean, everything? We'll do Marvel 2-in-1 when we get to it. But wow. uh, we're not going to do, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll slow down eventually. But we are not doing Two Gun Kid. We're just doing the superhero comics. We haven't gotcha. decided if we're going to do Sergeant Fury yet. Okay. But we're, we're largely just doing uh, the superhero comics. You know, and at first we're like, oh, should we do a few monster comics to sort of establish where Marvel was at the point? But of course, all those early Marvel comics are kind of like monster comics. You know, Hank mm-hmm. Pym first appears in very much a monster comic. The Fantastic Four's first couple issues were very much monster comics. So it's that's easing us into the Marvel age. And wow. uh, we are, it has been a tremendous amount of fun doing this podcast. And I enjoy recording the next 5,000 episodes that you have, a, <laughs> have ahead of you. So, well, anyway, Matt, well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for reaching out and wanting to do the show. This was just a blast to talk to you. It was great talking to you, Rob. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, no problem at all. So, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can find uh, you can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if, finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, and then you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug, George Doherty, and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Furthermore, you want to stick to playing normal modes of music, not wild stuff. Those we would find acceptable here would include Lawrence Welk, Jim Neighbors, Matovani. Percy Faith. Percy Faith, good. Andy Williams, Perry Como, and certain ballads by Mr. Frank Sinatra. Would Bob Dylan be out of line? Way, way, way out of line.